in the wake of the most recent natural disasters here in America, whether it be the hurricane that hit uh, Florida or the one that hit uh, Texas, uh, one of the things that has been fascinating to watch and for which our secular world and particularly the secular media has struggled to think through and about has been the way Christians have responded to these disasters. Just recently in the New York Times, there was an article uh, where the um, where the journalists basically went down and uh, began to interview some of these Christians that were uh, basically lost everything. Their homes were completely destructive destroyed. Uh, everything they owned was washed away. They had just a, a few uh, small heirlooms that they had remaining. And, and one of the things that took this journalist by surprise was the, the hope that this individual had in her eyes, the, the kind of resolve and peace that she had, even though everything was lost. And, and she was, he was confused by it. He didn't understand how this could be possible, uh, because from, for him, he functions from a different worldview. He functions from a different way of thinking than this uh, lady did. For this lady, she uh, put her trust in the Lord. And, and in this article, she really glorifies God through the fact that she lost everything. She's like, all these things are nothing. What matters most is I'm alive. The Lord is good. Uh, he's in control. All of those kind of things that many of you say when you face trial and difficulty was amazing to see as it was put on display in something like the New York Times, read by millions of majority of liberal secular Americans. People who don't niche it, right? I bet you if I took a poll this morning, not many in this congregation are reading the New York Times, right? Uh, because the news, you're probably like, yeah, that's not just not for me, right? But in that, it was fascinating. So these people are hearing about that. Now use this as kind of an illustration, if you will, to kind of think about what we're going to see this morning. How God has called Christians not to live in Christian countries or in Christian nations or in Christian communities, but rather God in his providence <coughs> excuse me has called us to be strangers aliens exiles and sojourners in foreign lands that we might be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ friends we should celebrate that we live in a country that is not confused about the gospel that is our country is not a christian nation Yes, there are some laws and some general uh, principles that are built on Judeo-Christian teaching, but generally our society is not Christian, and that's good. Because we can live as lights in a dark world, in a twisted generation, as we heard from Paul in Philippians, in such a way that every day in your life, in the workplace, or in the home, among your neighbors and family and friends, you can know without a doubt, you don't need to be confused about this, that you live in a secular culture. And if you are confused about this this morning, you just have to turn on the TV and watch it for about 30 seconds. And I don't care what channel, if it's the Disney channel or, or, or something else, you will see that we live in a pervasively non-Christian culture. And that all the more is a reason why we need to be a light to display the gospel 
like that woman who spoke up and put on display her hope in Christ in the midst of tragedy. So we are to take every moment of opportunity to display the glory of Christ in this dark world. We are stars. Stars shine brightly where there is no light. Brightness where there is darkness. And that is what we are. As Christians, we are to put on display God's glory among the nations. And friends, that's what we want to think about together as God's people today. How Christians are to live honorable lives among non-Christians. How are we to approach society? How are we to approach government? How are we to approach the school board or the office place? How are we to do that? How are we as Christians? Are we to, are we to transform the culture? Are we to change the culture? Well, friends, generally Christians for the last 2,000 years have not thought that. Yes, there have been some that have thought, hey, yeah, we can make a marketable change on culture, but generally Christians have just put their head down and tried to live honorable lives, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, and make impact where they can, but ultimately know that this world has fallen. Brothers and sisters, I know that, and I say this because in our country we have, and the reason I keep mentioning country and culture, because that's where we live, and, and boy, we've seen it like sand stirred up in a, in a tide, right, over the last couple of years in our country, right? Things have just gotten stirred up, and, uh, and particularly Christians confused and scratching their head, thinking that they were all the while in a Christian culture. No, no. No, you never were. You never were. And to think that if we could just get back to the good old days, then things would be good. Friends, there was never good old days here in America. Okay? Uh, you know, you just need it. Well, we're going to address that here in a minute, some of the bad days, uh, because of the text that we have to deal with this morning. But I, I don't want you to have your hope in who the next president of the United States is or who your next congressman is or congresswoman. Or who the next superintendent of the school board is. Look, we want to work for change, but as Christians, we want to live honorable lives, godly lives in the midst of an ungodly world. That's what we've been called to do. And that's what I invite us to this morning. So Peter is writing here. We've been walking through 1 Peter. And Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering in a fallen world. He is writing to Christians that are scattered around the Roman world that are living in a secular and pervasively wicked country. And he is writing to these Christians to endure the suffering that they have been given as a means to glorify God and to witness to others. And so he is writing to Christians much like ourselves in a different time, in a different place, but who face similar temptations and similar difficulties. And so this word is a word for you if you are following Christ. So I invite you to turn this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2, chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 11 through 25. I'm going to read, follow along with me in God's word, page 1015. Verses 11 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh 
which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, friends, there's a lot there. And in the next 30 minutes, we hope to cover it and, and, and get a good understanding of what Peter means. And I formulated this to kind of help us uh, to hang our thought on. As strangers in this world, Christians are to live distinct lives that bring honor to Christ among non-Christians. Christians are to live honorable lives. We are to live in such a life. Now, to be clear, I did not say Christians are to live perfect lives, sinless lives. I didn't say that. You're to be honorable among non-Christians. So the purpose of this text is to instruct Christians how to live honorable lives in a broken and sinful world. How do we as Christians live in a world that is pervasively wicked and sinful? A world that's filled with systems, government systems, school systems, uh, boardroom systems, you know, economic systems that are broken. And sinful. How are we to make it in a world that is this way? Are we to give up and quit and go home and live as hermits? Are we to pervade ourselves in the midst of a wicked culture, not becoming like the culture, but rather being lights in the midst of darkness? So our passage outlines for us three ways. Uh, so we're going to look at three big headings. Uh, three main sections, so verses 13, 11 through 12 is one, verses 13 through 17 is two, and then verses 18 down to verse 25 is number three. So number one, uh, how, uh, three ways how Christians are to live honorable lives in a broken and sinful world, first by battling against sin, 
Second, by submitting to the government. And third, by submitting to those in authority. Now, I just want to say briefly a little word, a side note here, a little aside. Um, Here is an advantage of preaching through consecutive verses in the Bible. Because I can guarantee you no preacher wants to stand before people and tell them to submit to the government. Because, man, that's messy, isn't it? That's messy. And we as Christians tend to avoid passages like this. We seek to explain them away. You know, a government's evil and, and, you know, they're always out to hurt people. But I just want to be real clear, real quick. Peter is writing to Christians living in the Roman world. And he is telling them to submit to the emperor. You can't get around that. It's pretty clear. Submit to those in authority. So I just want to be clear there. This is a tough word. It's a hard word, but it begins by battling against sin. Christians are to live honorable lives by, before outsiders by battling against sin. That's what Peter says here in verses 11 through 12. He says, look, you need to live in such a way uh, among outsiders that glorifies God as you battle sin. But I want to begin by looking at verse 11. Look what he says. Beloved. Beloved. Again, who you are defines how you live. Beloved, loved by another, loved by God. God so loved you, right? God loves you, and the, the since you are loved by God, you can live in radically different ways. You love the way God loves. You live the way God lives. Your character is God's character. So again, I don't want to ground this in some sort of moral be a better man or be a better woman. Be a better you. No, you want to understand that all of this is made possible, brought to you by the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of this is possible aside from you being beloved by God through the death of Christ. And so we want to understand that we are loved by God Loved by the Apostle Peter. And because of that, we are able to do this. Because of our standing with God, that transforms the way we live our lives. And so he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So not only are we beloved, but we are sojourners and exiles. We've seen this. This is not new to the letter. At the very beginning of the, uh, of the letter, he said, to the elect exiles. Again, we, we, we spent a week thinking about how we are exiles. We are living in foreign land. We are living in foreign territory. We are citizens of another country. We are not merely citizens of this world, but we are heavenly citizenship, right? And that is who we are. This world is not our home. We are only passing through. This is so glorious and wonderful. And Peter is saying, look, you're in a foreign land. You need to act like it. I don't know if you've ever traveled outside of the United States. Uh, my wife and I, a number of years ago, had the chance to do some traveling, and we traveled outside the States. And I won't mention where in case you're from that place. Um, and, uh, and, and so we traveled there. And, uh, and, and let me just tell you, it was kind of freaky, and it was scary. And, and, and we, were, we were going to this beach, and uh, we had our little, uh, Hope was a little baby then, and, and she was just like, a, I don't know, 18 months old or something like that. And as we were traveling, we get in this taxi to go to this place. And let me tell you, like if you've ever been anywhere in a foreign country and people are taking 
taking you places, uh, it can be kind of unnerving and you're really not sure, right? And it didn't help that the guy was kind of sketchy looking and, and so did the, the area was kind of sketchy. And, uh, and as we're like going out there, I mean, it transformed the way you think and live, doesn't it? I mean, when you're in foreign territory, you act right. Like the last thing you want to be doing is getting arrested by the foreign country because you know what happens to other people. Right? And so we all know that. And so, look, if you've ever traveled outside of America, you know exactly what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying, hey, you need to listen up. You, you ain't at home. You need to act like it. You're in foreign land. Like, there's some crazy people out there. You need to act like where you live. And you ain't living in your country. You're not living in, in safe territory. You're living in a hostile foreign land. Do we ever think of that when we go to work? we go over to the family's house for, uh, for Thanksgiving? When we turn on the TV and, and see some of the things going on in our country, we understand, like, this is not our home. Our identity is not tied to the fact that we are Americans. Look, we want to celebrate, be patriots, and, and, and do all of that and serve. Uh, uh, praise God for those who have served our country and given. They're all and serve daily. I mean, praise God for all of that. But our identity is not connected to the fact that, that we are Americans. Our identity is that we are exiles in a foreign land. And that changes. That changes how you approach your day-to-day -day life. That changes the way you approach your neighbors and friends and family. And so he's saying that we are to live before outsiders. So just to be clear, again, I sort of settle your heart there, that you are living among strangers. Not friends. So he exhorts us in two ways. In verse 11, he says that we are to live honorably by battling against sin. In verse 11, he says, listen, because this is where you're at, because you're in a foreign land, you need to act a certain way and you need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's really twofold. Number one, abstain from what people are doing around you. And number two, abstain from the evil desires within so I think the focus here in this passage is both external and internal. To abstain from the passions of the flesh is to abstain from that inward desire to sin. Look, if you're a Christian this morning, when you became a Christian, it did not mean the desire left. Well, that desire will be there until the Lord returns, and our responsibility is to continually put to death that desire. That is our responsibility, is to fight and battle sin. I mean, look at the language, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. I mean, this language that Peter is using is pervasive. Abstain. Cut it off. Don't have nothing to do with it. Don't get around it. Don't flirt with it. Don't play with it. You're playing with fire. And Peter is saying that, listen, you are not at home, you are in a foreign country, and you need to act like it. You don't need to be messing around with what people are doing in this world. Because it will only feed your sinful desires. They are at war against your soul. I mean, this is some crazy language here, right? This is a war. You ever think about that when you're battling sin? I mean, they, when, when I hear Christians, the way they talk about besetting sin... I often don't think they, they understand sin nature. Sin is wanting to do nothing but kill you. You understand that? Your sinful, wicked heart that is in everyone in this room wants nothing more than to see your soul die. That's the goal of, of our sin nature, is to kill us. 
It'll promise some good things. It'll promise life. It'll promise happiness and joy. And it'll promise everything. But at the end of the day, it will leave us as dead people on the side of the road. That's what it desires. And so we are at war against our sin nature and at war against evil in the world. And so we want to battle against it. We want to fight it. We don't want to be playing around with it. Because if you're wanting to play around with sin, I will guarantee you this, it will kill you. Whether it be lust or greed or selfishness or anger, whatever it is, it will kill you. Not only are we to battle sin, Peter goes on to say that we are to live in such a way that is honorable among Gentiles. He says there in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Uh, this keeping our conduct is not new to Peter. We've, we've looked at it already. If you look with your eyes up to verse 15 of chapter 1, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So conduct, the way of life, verses chapter 3, uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Yeah, I'm getting ready. This is exciting to preach that next week. Um, yeah. Uh, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one with a word by the conduct of their wives. So the way we live is a witness to unbelievers. The way we live is, is, a, is a witness to the character of God in our lives. Conduct is our way of life, the way we live, the way we go about, the way we see the world, the way we see difficulty in the world, the way we think through decisions. is All of it is pervasively Christian, and that's why it's different. When we make decisions, for example, financially, that the world kind of looks at and says, that's really silly. Like, Why would you be conservative in your, your, your finances? Right? Because the day and age just says, you know, you just get credit and, you know, you want it now, you can have it now. But as Christians, we're like, you know what? No, I, 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 man, that's, that's my flesh. It, I know I want that now, and I, I don't need that now. Right? So I saw some really funny things. I know many of you in here, but like, you know, so many young people just like desiring like new gadgets all the time, like, because they think they're going to satisfy their soul. Look, you know, a thousand dollar phone is not going to satisfy your soul no more than like a dollar phone. Okay? I mean, it's just not going to happen. Right? None of those things are meant to satisfy you. None of those things are meant to satisfy your soul. And so as Christians, we live a distinct life. Uh, just recently, Dave and I were talking about how, uh, how he was noticing his grandchildren and how his grandchildren really watched his, 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 their parents and, and how they were kind of acting like that. Maybe many of you have experienced that where, where you hear your grandchild talking and it's like you're talking to your son or your daughter. It's like, oh, I thought we put to death that. Uh, right, and you hear it, and you're like, oh, man. Well, what it is is that as Christians, we live like our Father in heaven. Our lives uh, mimic him, and we live in such a way that reflects him. Friends, this is why it's so important uh, in membership. That's why we take membership so important, because as Christians, we must live honorable lives. It is a witness to others. And when our witness to others is tarnished, friends, it can cause a great fall. I mean, we've heard the stories about pastors falling and how that has a ripple effect, not only in that community, but also in the neighborhoods surrounding, even nationally. How can people can lose faith because of our sin? And so Peter is saying, listen, if you live honorable lives, you might, through your good deeds, 
through that, bring someone to faith in Christ. He goes on to say, so as re- excuse me, as refugees living in a foreign land, we are to live honorable lives before others. This is what we are and who, who we are to be. We're to battle against sin and display God's character. But he goes on, and for time's sake, we need to go on to verses 13 through 17. He says that we are to live honorable lives before outsiders by submitting to the government. By submitting to the government. Verse 13, Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Uh, The exhortation is clear in this passage, and the context is all the more clear. He is writing to Christians living in a non-Christian country. Uh, the Roman government, the, the, I mean, the, we know much about the way the Romans did things, and one of the things we do know very clearly is that the Romans killed our Lord and Savior. We know the Romans, though they had a good society and, and structures, they were sinful and wicked. We can tell about the many times the emperors that were evil and wicked. In fact, those emperors that even sought to kill Christians and slaughter them. But yet here Peter is saying, look, you need to be subject, submit to, for the Lord's sake, every human institution. And so he expands that out, not only uh, government, but all human institutions. Now to be clear, there are some governments that seek to oppress and to hurt others. And so the question is, is this you know, a call to, to, to you know, revolt? and all? We're not going to deal with that this morning. You know, we're not going to deal with, you know, that pervasive question here all the time. You know, were the Christians uh, who rebelled against Britain sinful for forming the United States? Was the, uh, you know, I mean, were the German citizens that rebelled against uh, Nazi Germany, you know, were were they sinful? You know, we're not going to be able to deal with that this morning. So I don't don't, want to answer that question this morning. But I want to answer the positive question. How do we as Christians submit to government? I think the call is very clear, right? We submit to government. I think some of the ways that we can do that is by recognizing first that government is from God. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 13 that every government institution has been instituted by God. Therefore, there's some accountability with God and that government. That is, if the government abuses the authority of God, you don't have to worry about retribution. You don't have to worry about vengeance. God will deal with those evil leaders. And you can kind of trust that. But we need to see that God has a purpose for governing authorities. A purpose to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. God has instituted governing authorities for order and for safety and for protection. Our laws in America are meant to protect the weak and the innocent. We've often referred to no-fault divorce law as one of the pervasive things in our society that sought to undermine and hurt women and children. I mean... Look, if a guy could, could, could pick up and leave at any moment uh, for any reason, uh, that, that, that's not good for women and children. That is not helpful at all. That just seeks to hurt and undermine children and those women. And, and so the, you can see how our laws are meant and, and supposed to protect the innocent, to protect the weak, 
But yet often because of our sin and because we're led by sinful people, those laws actually work to hurt people. But how do we, as Christians, submit? Before we get there, I want to show you why. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Knowing the why sometimes helps the how. We are to do this as a means to submitting to God. When we submit to the government, so, so I know, you know, probably in a congregation like ours, there, there may be a few, but, but you hear recently this conversation like, you know, the president, he's not my president and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, look, that doesn't change, your, your personal opinion about the president doesn't change anything. Right? I mean, that doesn't change anything. And, and you know, if you, if you don't like him, you know, of course you work to get him, you know, voted out at the next election. But, but, but as Christians, we aren't out there like, you know, kind of like lambasting people. But we are saying, look, how can I in a clear conscience submit to even someone I disagree with? To submit to a president or a king or an emperor who is sinful. I, I don't need to make Donald Trump a saint in order to submit to him. I don't need to make him a Christian in order for me to submit to him. As Peter is not saying you need to go you know, get, a, get a Christian emperor in order for you to, to honor him. He says, honor the emperor, whoever he is or she is. Honor. Bring honor, right? There's a way in which you can honor someone without acknowledging like, and, and saying like everything they do is good. right? There's a sense of respect for those in authority. And I know many of our senior adults, many of our older saints, you're tracking, you know, you lived in a time here in America where respect was a little bit uh, better, right? You, you respect folks even you disagreed with. But as Christians, we want to cultivate in our hearts and lives a, a desire to submit and understand that when we submit, we are submitting to God and to his will. This is God's will for your submission to those in authority. So how do we submit? Verse 16, we are to submit as servants of God. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What he's saying is like, listen, yes, you're, in a, you're, you're citizens of a country. Yes, you know, but listen, you are free. You may not feel free, but you're free in Christ. And you are to live as servants of God, not servants of this world. That transforms how we do that. That we are to faithfully submit to those in governing authority as we submit to God. That's how we are to do it. We're to, we're to see ourselves as free men and women, but willing to submit for the glory of God. So let's get to some practical. How do we do that? I don't know. Do you obey the law of the land? Or do you constantly seek to undermine it? One of the pervasive ways I bet you do often is through your speeding. Is that a reflection of a submissive heart to governing authorities? Or are you just saying, ah, I know better. 80 is the speed that is appropriate for the interstate, right? How do we submit? Those are a silly example, but, but think about ways that we submit. We submit by paying taxes, not trying to deceive on our taxes, not trying to say, you know, hey, you know, I didn't make that. Well, you know, how do we undermine authority as Christians? I mean, do our non-Christian friends know that we do this? That we deceive the government through our taxes? That we, you know, uh, purposely undermine government? How do we submit? Do we submit willingly 
Well, I think this text is clearly teaching us that we submit as servants of God willingly, though we might have disagreements, though we might want to work for some change. There's some good change that needs to happen here in this country. But all the while, we want to submit. We want to say, you know what? Yeah, it's not perfect. It's a fallen world. My hope is not in this country. My hope is not Congress getting its act together. I had no hope in Congress getting their act together. Why? Because they're all sinful men and women, just like me. And they're broken. They have issues. And they need Jesus. And only Jesus can fix their problems. And only in heaven will, will there be perfect society. Only in heaven will the community be perfect. And so we want to work for those changes. We want to submit to the laws of the land. We want to do that. And we want to honor and pray for our president. We want to pray for those in authority. And so he concludes with a summary here in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Your fear of God is, how, is why you're doing this honoring. Your respect for God is why you are honoring. Listen, there is nothing more damaging to a society than to undermine authority. And you don't have to be around kids very long to understand that undermining authority is central to being sinful. And the last thing we want to do is participate as Christians in undermining authority. Because if you undermine government authority, if you undermine the authority of those in authority over you, you know what you're ultimately doing? You're undermining God's authority. And as Christians, we do not need to be running around saying that authority is bad, but understand that authority is good. Authority is good. Yes, it can be abused. Yes, it can be used for evil ends. Yes, we understand that. But authority is good because it was given by God. And it's a reflection of God's authority for us. So Christians are citizens of heaven, yet live honorably in a fallen world by submitting to those in governing authority. And they do it for God's glory. This leads us to sort of the final exhortation here this morning. Number three, live honorably before outsiders by submitting to those in authority over you. And this is just kind of a general text, and, and, and I'm going to kind of, we've got to deal with some stuff here. It's, it's just tough, but I'll deal with it briefly, and, and if you want to think more about it with me offline, we can do that. Verse 18, slaves or servants be subject to your masters in everything. How are we to take this verse? One thing we must be clear about, the Bible never exhorts or gives license for human slavery. Human slavery is a result of a fallen world. It is not a part of God's good plan and creation. The second thing we do not want to do is read American slavery into the Bible. As Americans, we have grown up to know the worst form of slavery ever to have existed. As Americans, we outdid ourselves in wickedness. Human chattel slavery, that was the American form of slavery, chattel slavery, uh, that is that the human, this is how I often explain it, is that slaves were equal with the horses and the pigs. They were, could be put down if they were not serving well. They could be treated just like you know, they would treat an animal. In fact, many people would treat horses and pigs better than they would treat their slaves. And so we do not want to read into the Bible, the Bible somehow trying to um, 
say this is good. Okay, So those Christians that tried to argue from the Bible that slavery was okay, they were demented and twisted and not following Jesus. But we also want to be clear that the Bible, while it never condemns slavery, that is, it never outright says, like, look, Christian church, you need to be uh, eradicating slavery from the face of the earth. It never, there's never an exhortation for that. And, and some might wonder why, like, what the heck? Uh, why isn't there? Well, the Bible is clear that owning humans is not right, okay? It is very clear about that. But you need to understand, this first century church was, was a small little thing. In a, in, in a society that was ginormously large and untouchable. And, and, and so what Peter and what Paul does is they say, look, live as Christians where you are. Where you are in life right now, you can follow Jesus. And, and I want to just point out one other thing. It's just sort of a side point. Is the fact that Peter even addresses servants shows the value that they have in them. No one would have naturally written a letter to a slave in the in the Greco-Roman world. Also, an illustration might be helpful. The kind of slavery and servanthood that was going on, and Peter's writing to household servants here, so, so folks that are working in the house, which is similar but not exactly. So I want to be clear, they were mistreated. They could be abused. They were treated badly at many times, as the text clearly indicates. Uh, that they could have an unjust master, a, an evil master, a morally bankrupt master, right? But it, it is similar to, and, and please don't push this illustration too far, it's similar to someone receiving a free education in exchange, or, or, or you know, serving in the military in exchange for a four-year degree. That is that when you go into, if you want that for it, you have to do something for it. You have to work, or, or, or a doctor serving uh, for a period of time at a hospital, or a teacher teaching at a particular school, and then the then the school then the state will pay for her education, will pay off her student loan debt, right? Or if you go work for the government for an X number of period in, in a particular field, then they'll forgive your student loans. It's similar to that, but not exactly. In the sense that these examples are sort of a little closer to the kind of servanthood, the kind of uh, bond servants that would have lived there in this country. Now, I want you to just kind of illustrate it this way. I want, I want us to think about it this way. This is an employee-employer relationship. So if you put the lens of employee-employer relationship here on this text, I think that it will carry over to our day and age. So that is, many of you are employee employees and some of you are employers some of you are managers and bosses and some of you are workers how do you work how do you do this do you only honor do you only submit to the good boss the one who treats everyone nicely and fairly or do you do you submit to even the unjust boss the one that's unfair the one that always passes over you for promotion the one that always is pointing to the girl next door rather than to you for the one that gets honored do you continue to work hard and serve well and do good even when the boss is terrible? So we could be general in the sense of all authority, whether it be our parents or whether it be our institutions we're a part of that we are to submit. We're to submit to the good and the bad. And Peter makes clear in verses 18 through 20 that we are to submit to receive a reward. That's the motivation for submission. 
We don't submit subserviently for submission's sake, but we submit to receive a reward. That's what he says, right? Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing or a favorable thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So if you get fired because you don't show up to work, I mean, what credit is that to you, right? You can't, right? I don't know, we kind of live in a society that wants to kind of allow that to happen and be okay with that. But generally, right? So, so we want to live, you know, we want to understand that our actions have consequences and we don't want to be surprised by that. But the motivation here is to bring favor from God and to God. We desire the favor of God. And so, look, it transforms the way you serve when you ultimately understand that you were serving God and not man. So whether you're serving in the local church or serving in the community or serving at work, your service is to God and not man. I think about my brother Leroy here who's like a, a, a workhorse at the hospital. I mean, walking that thing, he running you know, ruts in the floor. He's over there all the time, right? He's serving. I bet you if you ask Leroy why you do that, you do that to get a pat on the back to, to feel good about yourself? No, I do it to serve others. I do it to serve the Lord and to share the gospel, right? That when we serve sacrificially, we're doing it to the Lord and not to man. And that transforms the way we live and the way we submit. And then ultimately, verse uh, 21 through 25 says that we submit to imitate Christ. He says that your suffering is your identity, for to this you have been called. What have we been called to? We've been called to submit even in difficult places. Even when we have an unideal work situation because Christ submitted as our example. Paul goes on, or Peter goes on in verses, at the end of verse 21 and in 22 and through 25, laying before us Christ's example. He says, listen, uh, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. A Christian unwilling to suffer is not a Christ follower, but a self-follower. If you want to follow Jesus, you better get ready to suffer. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow. That's 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 tough. An invitation to follow Christ is an invitation to suffer. So you might want to count the cost if you want to follow Jesus. Oh, it's glorious. It's good. But you will suffer. Because you live in a fallen world. And you are not from this world. And this world won't want nothing to do with you. Because you are not of it. We are called by God. This is our identity. You see it? Our identity is suffers. You've been called to this, to suffer unjustly, unfairly, to be beaten when you don't deserve it, to be passed over, to be fired, to be ridiculed. You've been called, you've been been invited, you've received an invitation from God. This is your life because it was the life of the man you're following. He committed no sin. 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was sinless. Jesus did not deserve anything that he received. He was a sinless man. He did not deserve it. He did not return evil for evil. Right? He did not revile when reviled. I know that's how we are though, isn't it? When someone does something to us, we, we begin to think, away, how can I get them back? How can I get her back? How can I do that? Oh, Jesus was beaten but yet did not revile. When he was spit upon, he did not spit back. But rather submitted himself, didn't he? He submitted himself to that. He bore our sins on the cross, we are told, on the, on the tree, the tree referring to the cross. He bore our sins and he, we are healed by his wounds. Friends, we are following Christ to his death. That's what our call, call to die to ourselves, to submit to others. God has called us to submit even when we face difficulty and even when it's not fair. Now, I want to be clear about something today. That if in you are in a relationship where you are being physically or emotionally abused, Jesus is not saying to you, stay. So if you are in a relationship this morning where you are being physically or emotionally abused, get out. That doesn't mean divorce. That means you, you, you come, let the elders, deacons serve you and think through what that might look like. But Jesus is not saying just remain in that, right? but work for change in that. So we want to be clear about that this morning. But Jesus is calling us to submit to those in authority over us. To submit to those in authority, whether that be to the government, whether that be to our parents, whether that be to our bosses. To submit out of joy because ultimately we are submitting ourselves to God's will to his purposes for our lives. Our submission is a means to display God's glory and goodness among others. It's a reflection of Jesus. When you submit well, you are reflecting Jesus in your life. Even if we were to submit to unjust masters, we are displaying the example of Christ to those around us. And friends, our suffering provides a platform then for evangelism and to sharing the gospel. I want to end with a quote by Murray Harris. A slave is someone whose person and service belong wholly to another. As Christ purchased possession, the Christian is wholly devoted to the person of the master. As Christ's movable property, the Christian is totally available for the master's use. This complete devotion involves a humble submission to the person of Christ. This involves an acknowledgement that a supreme Lord he alone has absolute and exclusive rights to the will, affections, and energy now and forever. Friends, following Christ means you submit to him and submit to others. It's a, it is a case of devotion of the whole person for the whole life. You can't just submit to a few. It's an amazing picture of how we submit to Christ and submit to others for his glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give praise and glory to you. We do ask that your word would be made clear to our hearts today. We ask that uh, your word would seal in us. You give us the strength by your spirit to walk in obedience in our lives as we see authority as good and we submit to authority as we submit to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we heard a